Hey there, welcome back to On The Mic, outspoken LGBTQ storytelling. I'm Devlin Camp. Once a month, people from all over Chicago come to Sidetrack, one of the city's longest running gay bars, to hear stories told live by LGBTQ people. Now, we're going back into the archives, six years of archives, to bring the stories to you. Typically, an outspoken live show features a broad range of emotions, but while you're staying home, we want to bring some fun stories to you. Stories like a queer mother whose children were tragically born without gaydar, a story about sipping tea while spilling some with grandma, and a mother's outright shock that her daughter isn't gay. These are some wild ones. Let's get to it. Outspoken takes place the first Tuesday of every month at Sidetrack and is audio recorded in front of a live audience. Each story at Outspoken speaks from their unique perspective, and their views do not represent those of other speakers, the hosts, Outspoken, or Sidetrack. Outspoken is hosted by Art Johnston and Kim Hunt. Anji Kim is a comedian and writer based in Chicago. She is currently a senior writer for Cards Against Humanity. Ooh! What? We need to be getting autographs tonight. Anji can be seen performing improv in I.O. Chicago and stand-up solo sketch all over the city, including Zany's Laugh Factory and the Lincoln Lodge. She was honored to be a 2017 NBC Universal Bob Curry Fellow at Second City. She has been invited to perform at comedy festivals all over the Midwest, including NBC Universal Second City, Breakout Festival, Chicago Women's Funny Festival, and Detroit Improv Festival. Welcome her to the stage, y'all. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I am hot up here, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I just wanna look at you and like, just like declare, just so we get this out of the way. Um, I am bisexual, uh, thank you, thank you. If I was under 35, I would be queer. Um, <laughs> terms change, terms change. Um, <laughs> and the thing is, I, I, I think it's appropriate that uh, as a bisexual, that I am up here telling like a sort of a coming out story, because as a bisexual, I am constantly coming out as bisexual um, to always a new group of people. <sighs> um, <laughs> And some of that is a function of my life, right? I am um, a mother, wow, I know, thank you, nobody. Um, <laughs> I am a mother, I know, and uh, I am married uh, ugh, to a white man, I know, you guys, I fucked up. I fucked up, I needed insurance. Uh, you know what that's like. But I, know, I need to say, like, I, I, I've declared that I, I have come out to you as a mother. <laughs> and I feel like, you know, especially in front of a hip crowd, like, I do need to, like, assure you guys, I am cool. Um, I am, you guys. Uh, I have had an abortion, so, mm. Yeah. Pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Um, but that's why I call my son a keeper, so, mm. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. Yeah, bitch, give me those groans. Uh. So, <laughs> I will say, 
okay. So as a mother, I, I also, I think I would categorize myself as like a progressive mom, you know? Um, like I don't, I really don't care uh, whatever my son chooses to become or do or love, you know? But the thing is, I don't push that shit at home. But when he goes out into, into the world, there's forces beyond my control here, right? And so lately he's been coming home and saying, Mama, I want to marry a girl. <laughs> Heartbreaking. Because um, three months ago, he wanted to marry me. Um, <laughs> who the fuck is this bitch, you know? Uh, <laughs> but, okay, so, okay, so by the way, I do want to state for the record that um, my best sexual experience was, of course, with a woman. Um, thank you. Of course it was. Um, and her worst sexual experience was with me. So, um, a little rude of her to tell the entire rugby team that. Uh, by the way, this was a woman with, with, um, with whom I had been in a relationship for eight months. Um, so in like lesbian years, like that's eight months. Um, <laughs> so, but this is a relationship, by the way, that ended because she didn't, as she so delicately put it, she didn't want to train a lesbian. Yeah. Yes, she was a powerful sales lesbian. Um, yes, she was a little mean like this to me the entire time in our relationship. And yes, I do still follow her on Instagram. I love to be <laughs> put down in that way. Now, as for my coming out story, it is a little anticlimactic. Uh, sorry, you guys. Um, it is. Um, I wish it was more interesting, but it's not. I, um, I okay. So I obviously, I never had a, like a boy crazy period. Um, was never into boys, um, but I did have very intense female friendships as a child. Um, I female friendships with, uh, for whom I wrote a lot of poems and floral prose about, you know? Uh, like the ardor with which I hold your affection, you feel me? Um, thank you. That being said, I did love to settle into a late night session at my gateway computer um, with a fresh two liter of Diet Coke and catfish men in AOL chat rooms. Uh, and I would drink that entire two liter of Diet Coke. Uh, did have a crazy pr problem with it. Um, but truly, I think I, as a child, right, I didn't know how to categorize myself. I didn't even really think about it. I would categorize myself as a self-sexual. Um, I loved myself and power. Um, <laughs> when my classmates in junior high were starting that sort of twee thing about dating and being boyfriend-girlfriend, I impeached my class president <laughs> because I had shamefully been elected secretary. <laughs> Now, that isn't to say that I wasn't sexual. Like, I was rubbing my mound on all corners of all manner of sofas and chair. <laughs> but when I closed my eyes, I was thinking about Anne of Green Gables. Um, <laughs> most specifically, about the relationship between Anne and Diana. <laughs> and that is truly what gave me orgasms. <laughs> 
So yes, my nascent sexuality was like ill-defined for me. And frankly, I didn't care. The thing is, it wasn't until I had experienced my first orgasm with a woman that my little high school, high school shrine to Seth Green alongside huge posters of Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> yeah. Like it all really made sense to me. <laughs> and now I know, um, you guys are looking, my face, right? Um, you guys, I get it. You guys are looking at me, my face, Asian, um, gorgeous. Uh, <laughs> and you have to be asking yourselves, was my cluelessness about my sexuality willful, right? Because I come from an immigrant, I am an immigrant, by the way, um, uh, from Korea, South, the fun one, relax. Um, <laughs> Because I get it, parental, societal, peer pressure, it's real, of course. But as was evidenced by my impeaching my class president, I truly gave no fucks about my peers. Um, and my parents, well, okay. So my parents and all of their stereotypical Asian parent glory, yes, they own a dry cleaner. Yes, they put a lot of pressure on me scholastic -y. Yes, they beat me. Um, yes. But because they owned a dry cleaner in the city, they've always been good with the gays. <laughs> because, truly, because as the tech startup culture heralded the rise of jeans and the hoodie in the workplace, which was the death knell to the dry clean only business, no one appreciates the beauty of a starch collar like the gays. <laughs> Both male and female, okay? Um, and my parents love them for it. And, and perhaps most strikingly, my mother actively told me that I didn't need a man. Not here, not in America where I can make my own money, that in spite of being fat, ugly, and not that great, I could do it. <laughs> because I was smart and competent. God bless my parents' unhappy marriage. <laughs> for giving me the confidence of a mediocre white man. Uh, And, and so, when I eventually told my I eventually told my mother that I was in a relationship, but with a man, right? This is when I was deep in my 20s. She responded by saying, you not gay? Because <laughs> turns out my mother had seen my well-worn copies of Anne of Green Gables and accurately assessed the situation. <laughs> Also the fact that I had only applied to seven sister schools. <laughs> so that was my coming out story <laughs> to my mom. Again, like I said, kind of anticlimactic. So this is as opposed to every woman I'd ever loved, right? Who, every woman I'd ever loved had to be convinced that I was a lover and eager participant of mashing mounds and licking clits, who only after I had pursued with delightfully worded emails, you can only imagine, right? Um, text and very cute artsy gifts, mixed CDs, you guys, I made them mixed CDs. And that, who had begrudgingly allowed me to ram my double-jointed arthritic fingers into them. And then, <laughs> you guys, really. Um, and then obviously allowed them to do a much better job on me. Um, only then did they sort of believe me. But again, this is like in the early aughts, right? 
this was a different time. And I, I guess that was all a time in which I was like into women treating me bad. Um, but the youngs nowadays, a different, the, I mean, yeah, <laughs> the youngs nowadays is a different story. Okay, so let me tell you, in the first six months of 2019 alone, I've had more women and queer people slide into my DMs, yes, <laughs> and in person, try to fuck me. Um, <laughs> it's as if they can smell the ghost of pussy's past. Uh, <laughs> It's crazy. It's, I actually had to ask myself, like, I was asking myself, like, am I wearing a sign around my neck that says I'm unhappy in my marriage? Or am I saying that out loud? Mm. <laughs> By the way, that, <laughs> that is something that truly happened to me. Like, um, a very attractive, like, femme lesbian came up to me at the bar. I wish I was innocently drinking a tequila. And... She pointed to my wedding ring, <laughs> pointed to it and said, so, you happy in your marriage? <laughs> and I like, got red in the face and I was like, um, no. <laughs> she was good. Because uh <laughs> honestly, like, where I'm standing now, I never saw this future for myself. I always saw that. I always saw myself in some version of a Boston marriage, for those of you who read Edith Wharton. And um, I saw, I, I, but the thing is, I recently, I actually saw the future I saw, saw for myself recently, okay? I was in the home of, um, I call them a lesbian couple classic. Uh, there, it was in Oak Park, and it was like an older lesbian with like, yes, who was like the power lesbian lady, and then, her like younger blonde version of her. And then, uh, and like ooh in the classics then like either cares for dogs or sometimes children and they had children. And there was like NPR playing softly in the back. <laughs> oh, and I was just like, I saw this future where they were like, no men. <laughs> and I was like, just that like, I have fucked up. Um, <laughs> and the thing is I'm seeing it and like seeing all these people, these youngs coming to me. I'm grateful to these brazen youngs. <laughs> These youngs with their new multitude of terms, their acceptance of all gender identities, expressions, and kink, yes. They're showing me that, to paraphrase a well-worn idiom, um, that fucking is fucking is fucking. <laughs> and yes, I am in a loving, monogamous relationship with a man and have a child, but life is long. And I said, my son is a keeper. <laughs> hey, uh, You're hilarious. Hilarious. <laughs> 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 Woo! So many thoughts. So many thoughts. Our second storyteller, E. Patrick Johnson. Yes. Oh, yeah. And his fan club. E. Patrick is the, I love, I love this title, please. The Carlos Montezuma Professor of Performance Studies and African American Studies at Northwestern University. A scholar, artist, and activist, Johnson has performed nationally and internationally and has published widely in the area of race, gender, sexuality, and performance. Johnson is a prolific performer and scholar and uh, an inspiring teacher 
whose research and artistry has greatly impacted African-American studies, performance studies, and sexuality studies. He is the author and editor of several books, including Sweet Tea, Black Gay Men of the South, Black Queer Southern Women, An Oral History, and uh, No Tea, No Shade, New Writings in Black Queer Studies. Please welcome E. Patrick Hey, y'all. Y'all ready to have some fun? I became queer in the projects. Although I now live in Chicago, I'm a child of the South. Hickory, North Carolina, to be exact. You know Hickory? Oh, my God. All right. Well, unless you brought some fierce furniture, you probably never heard of this small little sleepy town in the foothills of the Tar Hill State. I'm the youngest of seven children, six boys and one girl, from a single mother. Single, uh, by, raised by a single mother. We lived first in a one-bedroom apartment in which my five brothers and sisters slept in three beds crammed into one bedroom, and my mother and I slept on a pull-out sofa in the living room, and then for 12 years in public housing. It was in the projects where I absorbed the knowledge that my family, extended family and community folks shared over meals at the dinner table, at the local barbershop, on the front porch, and at church. These social and cultural spaces and institutions taught me about politics, manners, and social etiquette, black history, and about queerness. The first site was literally our home. Given that I grew up the youngest of a very, a very masculine brothers who all played some sort of sport, one might find it hard to believe that queerness was in my home, but there Miss Queerness was all up in the house. <laughs> She first arrived in the form of my mother's wigs. My mother first dressed me, mm -hmm. my mother first dressed me in a wig at the age of three as a form of amusement. She thought it was cute. But she didn't think it was cute once I started sneaking into her bedroom and putting the wig on my head for myself. There was something about the feel of all that curly hair on my head that freed me. Before long, I was experimenting with mama's lipstick, necklaces, and high heels. Her room became a playhouse for me to experiment and relish in my budding homosexuality. Now, I'm not trying to equate gender and sexuality. All I'm saying is that at the early age of three, putting on my mother's wig and later her lipstick, necklaces, earrings, and shoes became a precursor for my own gendered performance of stylized femininity, specifically my mother's femininity. In some early photos of my mother, for example, she stands hand on hip in a pose that would give Betty Davis a run for her money. I found some similar photos of myself as a youngster mimicking that pose. Consciously or subconsciously, I had acquired my mother's drag, sporting her brand of femininity like a freshly laundered shawl, or perhaps something more bougie like a mink stole. Due to my socialization into Southern black masculinity, I soon traded in the wig for a football helmet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was a poor substitute. The only joy of playing football as a preteen was the fact that I got to see my other male friends naked. We often, we often would stand in the locker room and count how many pubic hairs we had. 
While conducting this comparison one afternoon, one of my friends told me, you know, if you fuck a girl with hers, you'll get hers. <laughs> Not very likely, I thought, <laughs> on both counts. I was smart enough to know that only a good hair grease would make your hair grow and that I was not going to be fucking no girls. <laughs> Playing house with them maybe, but definitely not fucking them. My foray into sports didn't last long, surprise, surprise. It couldn't, for I was too much of an intellectual to engage in such brutish activities. In other words, I was a mama's boy. Unlike my brothers, I loved hanging out with my sister and my mother. And because I was so much younger than my brothers, they didn't like hanging hanging out with, I didn't, they didn't want me hanging out with them. So by default, I stayed around the house with my mother. I learned many things about the ways of the world by sitting around the kitchen table, listening to my mother and her friends gossip while they snapped beans, while my mother gave a press and curl or baked pies or cakes. Sex was a part of the conversation on many occasions, especially when my Aunt Mary Lee, my mother's only sister, was visiting. Aunt Mary Lee loved to gossip, and especially about who was doing what with whom and where. Now, Aunt Mary Lee, like my mother, had a very high voice that pierced the air when she laughed. You could always hear her coming to the house because she wore an armful of bangles and bracelets. She loved her fat nephew. In fact, her nickname for me was Pug, because she said I looked like one of those pug dogs. Not a compliment, <laughs> but endearing nonetheless. When she walked in the door, she would always greet me with a kiss and say, Hey, Pug, Auntie wants you to make a run for her little on, a little later on, baby boy. Which really meant me going to Bojangles and getting her a three-piece. <laughs> she was about four foot 11 and seemed to be dressed up all the time, often in stilettos. When I knew she was coming over, I would make sure I found something to do around the house so that I could catch up on the latest gossip. While Mama, in general, denounced gossip, she always, interestingly enough, instigated Aunt Mary Lee's telling of it. Inevitably, Mama would look up from whatever she was doing and shout, Mary Lee, you ought not be saying stuff like that. That's how stuff gets started. You don't know nothing about them peoples. <laughs> Not the le least bit phased. Aunt Mary Lee would end the conversation with, well, Sarah, I'm telling you what I heard. If it ain't true, it ain't true. <laughs> and then roll her eyes. <laughs> I would tingle inside my ringside seat to this gossip. Aunt Mary Lee took pouring tea to another level and became my skilled trainer in the intricacies of the art form. While Aunt Mary Lee trained me how to dish, my Uncle Johnny taught me about gender fucking and exposed me to the DL. Now, Uncle Johnny was a natural born player. I don't remember a time when he wasn't hitting on a woman. Any woman, old, young, fat, toothless, light skinned, short, tall, it didn't matter. Uncle Johnny called all of his nieces and nephews by their first name, followed by baby doll, regardless of gender. So he would always greet me with, how you doing today, Pat, baby doll? 
I always found this strange, <laughs> but also cool because my older brothers hated when he added baby doll to their, to their names. I'm sure it was his way of infantilizing us, but I found it cool nonetheless. Uncle Johnny was always taking pictures with his Polaroid camera. Y'all remember Polaroids, right? He had trash bag fulls of pictures that he had taken over the years, mostly of women <laughs> that he had met at the barbershop where he hung out every day after work and on the weekends. One day, my mother asked him to bring over some of the pictures he had taken uh, to the house so that she could go through them to find, to find ones uh, from our past family reunions because she was making a collage for an upcoming reunion. Uncle Johnny arrived with two trash bag fulls of Polaroids and dumped them onto the kitchen table. Mama, my sister Pam, Aunt Mary Lee, Uncle Johnny and I sat around the kitchen table looking through the pictures. Aunt Mary Lee stumbled across a picture of Uncle, of Uncle Johnny with a woman named Sylvia, who most folks in the community believe to be a lesbian. Aunt Mary Lee turned to Uncle Johnny and asked, Johnny, ain't this a picture of Sylvia? Uncle Johnny took the picture from her, studied it for a long minute, seemingly became lost in an erotic reverie, and began to grin a devilish grin before replying, yeah. That's Sylvia. You know she half and half. Aunt Merrilee snatched the photo from Uncle Johnny's hand and retorted, well, if she half and half, what you doing with her then? Not to be undone, he coolly replied, I was with the half I could be with. <laughs> we howled. At that moment, I realized that Uncle Johnny was the coolest and queerest dirty old man I had ever known. It would be my grandmother, Mary, however, who would teach me how to read. In fact, my grandmother gave me my first lesson in Gadar. While visiting her years ago, we were sitting on the front porch drinking sweetened iced tea while she poured the tea about her neighbors. After, after a while, one neighbor, David, an elderly white man who had a soft voice, walked by and spoke to us. After he passed by, grandmama watched him as he made his way into the apartment. Satisfied that he had entered and closed the door, she said to me, you know he's a quail. Now, admittedly, I had no idea what she was talking about at first, and then came to understand that she was saying queer. But in her black southern dialect, it sounded like quail. <laughs> yeah, he's a homosexual, she, she continued. Oh, what, I asked. My grandmother said, you know, one of them homosexuals. <laughs> well, how do you know he's a homosexual, Grandma? Well, he gardens, keeps a clean. <laughs> he gardens, keeps a clean house, and bakes pies. <laughs> Given that I was not out to her, grandmama was reading me too. <laughs> Before she passed away, she continued to read me. 
I remember speaking her speaking with her over the phone about a year after I moved to Chicago with my partner, Stephen, who my grandmother only knew as my roommate. During the very brief conversation, because black Southern folks don't stand on, on the phone long, especially during then, because it was long distance. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> this is pre-cell phones. <laughs> during the very brief conversation, she only asked me three questions. Pat, how you doing? How's your roommate? Does he have a job? <laughs> after, I re after I replied positively to her inquiry, she was ready to get off the phone. She knew and I knew that I had been read. But more to the point, she had gotten the information that she needed to feel okay about my roommate. I was happy, he was happy, and he had a job. <laughs> Enough said. The other training ground for my queerness was the church. My mother dragged me to church every Sunday the Lord sent, and believe me, I got tired of him sending them. Like most of the folk in my community, we were Baptists. Unlike some of the churches in the South where the pastor gay bashed from the pulpit, my pastor never did. In fact, in all of the years that I attended Morningstar First Baptist Church where everybody is somebody and Jesus is Lord, <laughs> I cannot remember the pastor ever preaching a homophobic sermon or even mentioning homosexuality at all. Church was genuinely a fun and nurturing place for all of us budding sissies, especially for those who sang in the choir. For many years, the choir was my saving grace. It was in the choir where I felt free to express myself, where I felt appreciated. I would catch the spirit myself at times, especially during my solos. The little queen in me was begging to show out, and I had a captive audience. By the time I was 12, I made quite a reputation for myself as a little fat boy with a high butt and a high voice that could sing. <laughs> I was the only boy soprano, and I could outsing all the girls in the soprano section. I was this fat boy soprano with a big butt and a big voice, and I got to church to shouting every Sunday by singing the solo originally sung by Yolanda Adams with the Southeastern Inspirational Choir out of Houston, Texas. The song was called My Liberty, How Prophetic. We had one of the best children choirs in the area and I garnered quite a reputation as a little queen who could sing soprano. Although folks marveled at my soaring melismas, I was teased about my high voice as I got older. When I reached 15 and I was still singing soprano, well, let's just say it seemed a little quail. <laughs> but the diva would not be dismissed as I kept right on twirling in my robe and singing my soprano until at age 17, much to my chagrin, my voice changed and I could no longer hit those high notes and Sherry Shade took over the lead to my liberty. <laughs> Me? Bitter? No. Heifer. These memories of the projects and of the South in general, general remind me that I have, I have not overcome just because I live in a big city now. In fact, it was my Southern black community and the projects that was, site of, that was the site of my coming into knowledge about the world, the site of my first coming. It is because of those experiences that I can now honestly say I'm living my life like it's golden. And so are those queer brothers and sisters who remain in the community and others like it all over the South.
while collecting the stories of black queer folk who were born, raised, and continue to live in the South, listening to their stories not only grounded me, but it also took me back to places I have only visited in the crevices of my mind's eye. They were telling my story while narrating their own. Stories that take me back to mama's bedroom, the kitchen table, Aunt Mary Lee's laughter, Uncle Johnny's cunning, grandmama's front porch, and the choir stand. I can't wait to get back home again. Eve Patrick, it was such an honor to have you on this stage. Thank you so much. LGBTQI folks have existed since the beginning of humanity. Today, we celebrate the life of Lorena Borjas. She was a mother of the transgender Latinx community of Queens, New York. Borjas was a Mexican immigrant who was undocumented in the U.S. for several years. She was a formerly incarcerated sex worker who spent the latter decades of her life advocating for trans women in prison and women in need of housing, legal assistance, and health care, all while she was working a full-time job. And she helped these countless women at no cost to them. She was at a high risk of deportation based on convictions from when she was being trafficked, but that didn't stop her from helping people. Then, in December 2017, Governor Andrew Cuomo issued a rare pardon for Borjas. She was then able to apply for citizenship. She said, with this pardon granted, I will no longer have to go to sleep at night worrying that I'll be deported back to a country that is no longer home. I will be able to live my life without stress and fear of immigration, and I will be able to continue doing the work I do and help more vulnerable transgender women. She gave out condoms to the girls. She set up a weekly HIV testing clinic in her home. She answered calls for help in the middle of the night. She invited trans women released from jail to stay with her while they got back on their feet. She led rallies for sex workers and went multiple times a week to the Sylvia Rivera Law Project to help other women. Lorena Borjas then started a bail fund for detained transgender immigrants. You can donate to it, the Lorena Borjas Community Fund at lorenaborjas.org. There's a link in the episode notes. She spent her last Thanksgiving hosting a dinner for 12 trans women who had been held in ICE detention. Borjas died on March 30th, 2020 of COVID-19. That night, a Zoom meeting hosted nearly 250 friends of Lorena Borjas across the country to honor her memory and tell stories of how she changed all of their lives and more. Are you ready for the second half? Yes! I get it together. <laughs> so Elizabeth Gomez is our next storyteller. And if you're looking for a ray of bright sunshine in this gray weather, look somewhere else. <laughs> These are her words, not mine. <laughs> this is reality, and Elizabeth Gomez will give it to you, her own true fashion. Although by the time she's done, you'll leave laughing aloud in your seat with tears streaming down your face because that's just who she is. Let's welcome Elizabeth to the stage. Are you guys having a good time? All right. I hate labels. In my opinion, the broader the description, the more you can imagine. I find labels limiting. I do everything I can do to avoid a category. It's like my strongest Gen X trait. Forced to identify, I'd rather give you the answer, boss bitch, over Korean, Puerto Rican, queer, in a straight marriage with two kids. Because I hate the last one the most. Mom is not my brand. 
Truth be told, I love watching a person unfold. I find that many labels are merely reading the reviews on the back of a book, but never opening the pages to find out more. Labels tend, <laughs> labels tend to make us skip over the awe of the journey or assume things about a person. I mean, just because someone identifies as a polyamorous, non-binary, pansexual, doesn't mean that they're not an asshole. And it never occurred to me once I had kids that I should introduce my friends by leading with their sexual identity. Months after my friends Pat and Tim were coming to my house, my oldest daughter, V, around nine at the time, figured out that these guys were gay and then asked accusingly, are you guys gay? <laughs> and we laughed because they'd been kissing and holding hands openly. Plus the girls call them their gunkles for gay uncle which made it seem very obvious that they were gay and my children were kind of dumb. <laughs> we lived freely as people who were more interesting than our sexual identification. A few months later, Violet would also ask us if Ellen was gay, and then we were devastated to realize that she was never born with a gaydar. And when she was in seventh grade, she told me how her peers were all coming out. She looked at me and said, I'm tired of reading how everyone is gay. I'm glad that they're out, but I'd like to know more about their life. And it caught me off guard. Like on one hand, I remember supporting friends who came out and when we were teenagers, and it literally ruined their families. And we lost lives over it. So the casual dismissal kind of hurt. On the other hand, I thought it was amazing and brave that these kids were coming out in seventh grade publicly on Facebook. And V's blasé attitude was actually a level up in progress. And the next step would be for all of us to realize that we're all just a little queer. And last year, I was bartending at my part-time job when my youngest, Z, came to have pizza with a friend. Z is tall and she has wide hips. She looks like she sprung out of my face. <laughs> the only difference is that she has these beautiful, like Brooke Shields, thick brows, you know? And my eyebrows look like I just survived the 90s. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know what I mean, look at Gwen Stefani in her no doubt years. I returned from the bathroom and these two teens were giggling and holding hands and I looked at them and I was like, what's so funny? Z turned very serious and she said to me, mom, I want you to know that I'm gender fluid. And I wasn't really surprised, but I think she wanted me to feel that way. I mean, raising the girls as I did, it never occurred to me that we would have this like coming out moment in my family. And for a second, I did panic. Not because she's gender fluid, but because I really have a hard time with they, them versus singular and plural per, uh, persons. And this can be challenging for somebody who's as old as I am. And Z was already thrown me off, had already thrown me off with all these pronouns that I had to also teach myself for her peers and her friends. For example, I'm one of those people who honestly goes, sup dudes or hey ladies, and I think that's gender neutral. 
But Z is always pulling me aside and correcting me. And what's more horrifying is that I've become like that mom. <laughs> like that mom that you have to explain to all your friends. Listen, I'm sorry she called you she. She just doesn't know better because she's like a hundred. <laughs> and I knew we'd have to explain this to Z's dad and this would not go well with someone who recently tried to convince me that if the shit went down, he had a bunker where we could hide. <laughs> When I asked him what the shit was, he referred to fights between conservatives and Democrats and the government wanting to take away our rights. And while I love, I love my children, I often want to throat punch my ex-husband. <laughs> but I choose not to because he's bipolar. I just didn't expect to laugh there, okay? <laughs> and I choose not to because he has bipolar. And I know that no matter how frustrating he is, he can't help himself. And bipolar is complicated. The way it shows up in my ex-husband makes you think that he's fairly normal as long as you limit the conversation to 10 minutes. Me, personally, 30 seconds. And if you live with him or talk to him about anything for an extended period of time, you can see it. He rambles. He believes he's right all the time about everything. He's paranoid and emotionally abusive. You know, like a man. And for years before this moment, we've been working with Z to address her depression, to address her depression, cutting, suicidal ideation, and anxiety. She began meds, started working with a therapist and a psychiatrist. She got a personal trainer, changed her schools, moved out of her dad's house to live with, mine, live with me and mine to help her get more stability. And standing behind the bar, it's okay. And standing behind the bar, I admired Z. And watching the faces of these two teens just be teenagers filled me with so much love because we worked so hard to get there. And it was very, very adorable. It was perfectly teen. But I was scared about the setback when she told her father because there's no worse feeling in the world than knowing that one day you may come home to a dead teenager. I tell Z that she gets to be whoever she wants to be and that I love everything about her. Out loud, I wonder if, I have, if Gen Xers had the vocabulary that she did, would we turn out differently? Would we be thinking differently? And I wonder 
I wonder if I knew something was different in her because of, her des of my desire to share music with her about gender-bending musicians, Joan Jett, David Bowie, Annie Lennox, and Prince, and I dismissed that idea because I also did that with Violet, and uh, she's like really fierce femme. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a long discussion about gender and social constructs and her need to identify as male, female, and androgynous. We talk about the differences in our feelings, um, or in our feelings about being gender fluid versus gender play. And I learn a lot. I tell Z that I'm proud of her, and I ask her to be patient with me and my friends as we make the transition. She says she doesn't care because she's, she knows that I'm like super old. <laughs> and I tell her, we may be old, but we're not too old to respect what you ask us. And she says, she doesn't really care. She prefers they, them, but doesn't mind she and he. And then my brain explodes. <laughs> and later that week, Z comes home from visiting her father. And she's crying and angry. When, I, when, he, when she asked him if he would support her about anything in life, he said, of course. Of course, even if you wanted a sex change operation, that's how he sounds. Even if you want a sex, even if you want a sex change operation, I get you all the money you need, which I find hilarious since he hasn't paid any child support over the last 20 years, which literally has nothing to do with the story, but I'm petty. And, the, and then Z replies to her father, well, do you, do, you, do you mind calling me they or them? And her dad ridiculously snaps back, no, that's confusing. And Z cries in my arms as she tells me how she wanted her dad to understand how important this was for her. And honestly, I don't understand why it matters so much. I mean... Who cares? Why can't you just be who you want to be without these stupid fucking labels? But then it dawns on me. As much as I hate labels, the benefits for other people are a simple way to tell a person, for a person to tell others what to expect from them. A way to show a person how to find others like them. A way to show pride in who you are. A classification that you're not a classification, which is very ironic. And most importantly, it's a way for you to understand you. Between Z being a regular old teenager and her father's bipolar, her mental health challenges, her struggles with her sexuality and gender identity, the very least I feel like I can do is call her they. And deep in my heart, I wish that her dad would understand. And even if you don't believe in any of this, like if E could just grasp one concept, if he could grasp just one concept, that would be is when your kids ask you for support, you figure out a way to fucking support them. And I tell Z that they'll have a whole life in front of them and their father will be a small fraction. 
They need to focus on their friends and their gunkles and their aunties and their family that will support them. I tell them that they get to be whoever they want without explaining it to anybody, ever. And I feel like that's also a very Gen X quality of mine. <laughs> but I honestly believe it. Labels or no labels, this is your life. So you get to live it the way that you want. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Elizabeth Gomez. <laughs> Don't forget to tip your bartender. That's it for this month. Thanks for joining us. If you've got a sec, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes and subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any podcast platforms. Outspoken is hosted by Art Johnston and Kim Hunt, curated by Archie Jamjohn, artistic director David Fink, stage manager Brad Baylaw, story collector Ray Teresi, audiovisual tech Brian Smith, podcast producer Devlin Camp. That's me. Unji Kim's story was recorded in June 2019, E. Patrick Johnson in February 2019, and Elizabeth Gomez in May 2019. Outspoken takes place the first Tuesday of every month at Sidetrack and is audio recorded in front of a live audience. Sidetrack is dedicated to providing entertainment and hospitality in a respectful, safe, and inclusive space for the LGBTQIA community. Find out more at SidetrackChicago.com. You can find more information about Outspoken at SidetrackChicago.com slash OutspokenChicago. Music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons 4.0. Bye!